Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, author of Who Do Justice Magic, Binaural Production Engineer, Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of it's not aliens, it's worse. It's us. If you are interested in contributing to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything there. Now, without further ado, it's my honor today to uh, bring our guest on, Deborah Jordan Cobble. She has a book called Extraordinary Contact, Life Beyond Intruders, and she is also the um, subject or person in the what Hopkins book, Intruders, and the TV miniseries. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for asking me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is fantastic. So let's start from the beginning. Um, share like, um, how the uh, contact experience began with you and what it was like. I have memories going back to about the age of six. Um, my older sister, who's 11 years older than me, took me on a trip, a weekend trip to um, Detroit once. Uh, I was about six years old. So this was probably 1965, 66. And um, I was missing for the whole day. And I was found by my sister. This is what everybody tells me. My sister went out and found me and brought me back. And I do remember seeing her at the end of the walk path, uh, when I got pushed out of the house I was in, I was, I was at this family, well, friend's house with her, playing with her girlfriend's little sister. And I remember kicking a ball over the fence and um, jumping over the fence to get the ball and then realizing, looking around and I'm like lost. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. And uh, I walked around the front of the house and I saw what I thought was the house that I was supposed to be in. The door was open, so I walked in, mm -hmm. and things looked kind of familiar, but a little bit jumbled. And I got scared, and I started to run out the door, and there was a little boy between me and the door. And he was about my height, and he had brown eyes and blonde hair, and he asked me to stay and play with him. said he had a really cool toy room. He had a lot of toys. And um, I said, yeah, sure, yeah. When I saw the little boy, I felt I wasn't as afraid because, you know, it was he was a little boy like me. I was a little kid. And then I remember being in this toy room, which seemed not to match the house because it was so big and bright, and I didn't recognize any of the toys. And I remember there was a, a, an area in the room that was kind of sunken down kind of like a sunken living room is in a house you know and i remember sitting on the edge of that thing and i i remember seeing a red light on the wall flashing and something coming out of the wall and i he, either he gave me or i picked up the toy that looked about the size of a shoebox and it had sh strings all across it and i assumed i was supposed to pluck them like a we used to make the toy you know instruments like guitars and stuff. Mm -hmm. We did that when I was little. And uh, 
So I was plucking this and then I felt something poke me in the leg and it hurt and I got scared and I tried to leave. And I remember being at the front door of this house and this, I thought was this little boy's mother came out from somewhere and was really angry that I was there and said, what is she doing here? She doesn't belong here. And then it felt like someone shoved me out the door. But no, I don't think anybody touched me. It just felt forceful as I went out the door. But it the there was a long walkway in front of the house. And then there was the sidewalk. And it was like a cul-de-sac kind of curve. And there at the end of the walkway was my sister. And I thought, and I remember feeling relief that I there was my sister. So all my anxiety and my fear went away. And I walked up to her and I took her hand. I don't recall her saying anything to me at all. And then we went home and we went back to the house we were supposed to be at and then went home. And that was one of the earliest memories I had. And um, when Bud first came to investigate the June 30th, 1983 incident, and he started asking about other weird stuff. My mother is actually the one who brought it up and said, don't you remember when you were missing for the whole day? And I said, Bit, you know, I, I said, oh, yeah, but not I, I didn't remember all of it. They started to tell Bud what had happened, you know, and that Kathy was the one who found me. I don't recall her saying anything about, you know, what was going through her mind when she found me. All I know is that this was like the earliest memory I had of mm -hmm. something weird going on. That and uh, my sister, my older sister and I both have the same kind of memory of my parent, my mother trying to hide us from men who were trying to get us. My older sister has recalls my mom actually trying to shove her up into the attic in the closet to hide her from these men. And I remember being in a plate in a crib. So that's how little I was. I mean, I don't I don't remember men or anything like that. I just remember mom was a mom was afraid. Mom was really scared. Something was happening. But um, so strange things have happened to me since I was pretty much born, you know. And then uh, all through my life growing up, we had what I guess people would consider to be paranormal activity. I thought it was normal. I thought that this kind of stuff just happened. It was just a part of life. And uh, it wasn't until I got into school and started talking about it to other kids that I realized that maybe not everybody you know, had this happen to them. And it, it, I learned quickly to be very careful about what I said to who I said it to, you know. Um, and I have memories of when I was really little, a really little kid uh, playing outside, looking up at the stars and wondering if there is some little kid up there looking up at the stars in his backyard, wondering if I'm here, you know, things like that, that I don't, I thought all everybody thought about, but now I, I, you know, I, I realized it later that not everybody does think about that. Mm. Um, and then, uh, I found my, in the, at about the age of 23, I found myself a single parent and getting divorced. So I moved back home with my mom and dad because I had two little kids that were 14 months apart, little boys. And um, I didn't have a job. So thank God for my parents that helped me. But it was while I was living there that the June 30th, 1983 thing happened, which eventually prompted me to go 
seek out Bud Hopkins. Uh, prior to that, by a few months, uh, I'm not exactly sure how long I had picked up a book called Missing Time in the library, mm-hmm. a- along with a bunch of other books, you know. And when I picked it up, I wasn't quite sure what it was about, um, but it looked interesting. So I brought it home. And as I started to read it, I started having panic attacks and I was thinking this was freaking me out and I'd have to stop. And I believe like maybe one week I got my mom to take me to the emergency room once or twice because I thought I was having a heart attack and it was, and it was a panic attack it was an anxiety attack. And I realized that it was after I was trying to read this book and my mom made the comment to me, she goes, we're going to have to take that book back to the library because we can't afford to keep doing this. <laughs> so I took the book back, you know, and then it was not too long after that, that the June 30, 83 incident happened. And um, that incident was, I was about to go cut some patterns for a friend of mine who was a sem- seamstress that was making, she was making costumes she lived right behind my parents, the next street over. And she'd give me a little spending money to help cut her patterns out for her. And it helped out mom and dad, you know. So uh, I was getting ready to go there. And I was standing in front of the kitchen window, looking out the window kind of mindlessly. But I noticed that the, there was an odd looking light in the pump house of mom and dad's swimming pool. And they had one of those Esther William cement pond kind of underground swimming pools in the back of the back of the yard between the house and dad's workshop. And the pump house was probably about the size of a mini barn, um, a little smaller, maybe mm-hmm. one of those aluminum ones you can get at Lowe's or something. Um, it wasn't too big. It was made out of the same sandstone that the house was made out of. Or lime, Indian limestone, I think. But um Anyway, I noticed this weird light coming out of it, and it just struck me odd. I don't know. I, I didn't know at the time. I think in thinking about it later, I think the light was more white than it should have been. But at the moment, it didn't re- consciously register. I just knew something wasn't right. And I mentioned it to my mom, and she said, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'll, you know, I'll go turn it off later. Your dad will turn it off when he gets home. Dad worked the second shift at Ford, so he wasn't home. At this point, he was already at work. So... I left the house about five minutes later and I decided to take one drive around the, the side drive into the turnaround and back. So I get a good full view of the backyard and the workshop. And I'm thinking, you know, prowlers. Dad had uh, Indian motorcycles and uh, a, a British sports race car back in the shed that he was working on, you know, money stuff. And people might be wanting to break into that or, and I was kind of worried about leaving my mom home alone with my two little kids. So, but I, the light was gone, but I noticed the door to the garage that's attached to the house was now open. But instead of stopping, I went on ahead and went to Deanna's house. It took two minutes and I called her and I said, Hey, the pedestrian door's open. So, you know, that means Penny's out. That, That was my dog. And she said, no, I said, do you want me to come home? She's like, no, don't worry about it. I'll lock the doors. We'll be fine. Your dad will be home before long. And I, I, my friend, I know her husband had to hear the concern in my voice my, because uh, my, I, I hung up the phone and then it rang again and my mom called right back and she said, I need you to come home right now. And I was like, why? Because she just had just told me everything was fine. And my mom never sounded scared. So that was uh, new to me, you know, that my mom would even be nervous. 
And my girlfriend's husband, he yells over my shoulder, tell her to call the police. That's what we pay him for. And she heard him and she said, no, I don't want anyone here but you. So I, I went back. I uh, got, uh, when I got there and got out of my car, went in the side of the house. I took um, a shotgun that my dad had next to the trash compactor out in the Florida rooms. We called this little sunroom he built. It wasn't loaded. Mom says, you know, that's not loaded, right? And I'm like, yeah, but whoever I find out here isn't going to know it's not loaded until I get close enough to hit him with it, you know? And I wasn't brave back then. I was in early 20s, just a kid. Mm-hmm. So even that I did that was out of character for me. I didn't even like to touch guns. And I grabbed it and went out there, looked around, didn't see anything, found the dog under the, um, the ladder truck back there behind the pool. Didn't see anything amiss at the workshop, so I went towards the garage because that was the only place left to look. I got into the garage, uh, turned on the light, nobody there, started to check behind a set of mattresses that were leaned up against the wall, and uh, suddenly I felt like I was on fire. I felt like I was having a, a hot flash, like my skin was burning, and I, re- and I remembered thinking, oh God, I got to get out of here right now. And I turned to run through that open door. And when I hit the doorway, something hit me right here, like in your chest Mm -hmm. belly area. And this was, there was the brightest, most intense white light I've ever seen in my life. It was so bright and white that it hurt. And I know my eyes were closed, but I could still see this light. I couldn't get away from it. And I could feel it spread through my legs and through my arms and around my head and everything. And it felt like I was shaking really hard. And then the shaking turned into a vibration, a real fine vibration. And it it almost, I could almost feel like I could feel each molecule of my body vibrate independently. It was the weirdest feeling. And I do remember thinking consciously, oh my God, I'm dead. I thought this is, I'm dead. And um, I don't know how long this whole that lasted because it was like time kind of stopped. Although I I don't know how, what it mm-hmm. you know me I'm not a physicist or a scientist you know I'm a factory worker but it just felt like one of those moments where everything goes in slow mo you know what I mean when you're stunned yeah <clears throat> and then it stopped the intensity waned greatly um, the shaking. The vibrating turned into shaking, shaking stopped, and it, you know, it slowed down and stopped. But I was now outside the doorway, out on the cement patio, and um, I felt something pull down on the back of my shoulders, like somebody was pulling on me, but I couldn't see anyone. And then I heard somebody say, it's unfortunate that you felt pain, and but I couldn't see who was talking to me. And about that same time, I started to notice movement out in front of me in the yard, but I, my vision was trashed. Everything was splotchy white blobs everywhere in my vision, but I could still see movement and I could see what I thought were children in my mom's yard. And I remember thinking, what are these kids doing in my mom's backyard? And, um, they seem to come from different areas in the yard and kind of line up, up in the, they were, off to my right up in the corner by the driveway where the swimming pool uh, gate meets the driveway. And they kind of lined up there and then they just kind of slid down in front of me, not 
not towards me per se, not at me, but they slid down in front of me towards something else. And that's when I saw the thing. And I saw it to my left and the corner of my eye. And I was able to turn my eyes far enough to see this. And it was shaped like an egg. It wasn't much bigger than the pump house swimming pool. It wasn't very big. And um, it, I couldn't even tell. I couldn't. I almost kind of thought it was not totally all the way on the ground because I thought I could see a wobble a little bit, but not. I wasn't sure. I couldn't. I didn't want to look at it, but I didn't not want to look at it because I was so terrified that it was going to come near me. And I remember thinking, don't, please don't move. And um, it had what I thought were like legs coming out, but the middle of the, around the wider part of it, not down at the bottom. And they looked too skinny to hold weight. So I don't know if they were supposed to stabilize this thing or what, but it was, it, I, I just saw something coming out the sides of it. And then about 25 feet in front of me, but I don't know whether it was attached to this egg-shaped thing or not, but it was next to it. There was a, a ball of white light about the size of a basketball, but it was much more soft to look at. It wasn't intense like what hit me. And it was about as high up off the ground as I am tall. And I'm, I'm five foot three. And it went down really slow. And then it came back up and stopped where it started. And I got the impression it was looking at me. And I don't know why I thought that. But um, at some point in, around that time, I remember thinking, oh, my God, my kids. Because my kids were in this house, you know. And this crazy stuff going on out here. And, and immediately the voice spoke to me again and said, your children are fine. And then the next thing I remember, um, I don't remember seeing them go away or me going in anything or what. I don't remember anything like that. Uh, I just remember my name, hearing my name. And when I did, it was like someone snapped their fingers. And I, I remember turning and walking towards the back porch. There was a I was on the lower patio. Then there was a few cement steps up to an upper porch because this was the tri-level. And the mom actually was the one who had called my name from the back kitchen door. So I got to the steps where I could see her and she said, is everything okay? And I said, everything's cool. But I didn't want to go cut patterns anymore. I wanted to go swim. I wanted to get wet. I just, I felt weird. So um, I talked to my friend and we decided that her and her daughter, her teenage daughter, would come over and swim with me at the pool. I can't remember whether I went over there and came back with them or they just came over. But uh, I remember walking across the back of the yard with them and her daughter suddenly, you know, yowch something. She stepped on something in the yard and her and her mother and I assumed it was a bee or something that she might have stepped on. She was said, oh, it's tingling. My foot is burning, you know. My, my leg is getting numb. My foot's getting numb. Well, we looked her foot over and didn't see anything. And so her mom's like, get your foot in the water, you know, cold, chlorinated water. If it, if you pricked it with the bee sting or something, that will help it feel better. And so we're in the pool, probably maybe 10 minutes or so, not terribly long. I can't remember exactly how long we were in. You know, this was 39 years ago. But uh, I do remember... Suddenly, all three of us started to feel nauseated. I, I was, I started feeling it first, and then the girls soon after began to complain about it as well, real queasy. 
I had a headache, and then I started to realize that I was seeing halos around the lights, that because it was dark out now, and I was seeing halo around the lights around the swimming pool, and I'm like, what is going on with my eyes? Because they were burning, and it seemed like I'd gotten chlorine in them, because I used to do that when I was a kid. You swim with your eyes open underwater too long, and then your eyes are all red, and fuzziness around the lights but i hadn't got my head wet and so we our swimming session got cut kind of short at one point deanna suggested we go to white castle <laughs> i don't know if you know White Castle. <laughs> probably not a good idea if you're nauseated but hey no, she's, people feel better <laughs> so but but that ended up not working out and they went home and i went to bed and when i woke up the next morning my eyes were swollen shut and I was in so much pain. It hurt so bad. I couldn't open my eyes. I couldn't see. So my mom took me to the emergency room. And I had no idea why, but there was an actual, um, uh, is it an ophthalmologist, the actual physician, mm -hmm. that uh, eye doctor, not the guy who just gives you glasses, but the other kind. He was in the emergency room, and I don't know why, but they connected him with me and my mom, and he asked my mother to take me across the street to his office because he could examine me better there so we did and the first thing he asked me was have you looked into the arc of a welder's torch and i'm like no and mind you i did not remember the light the whole thing from the night before at this point so i didn't tell him because i didn't remember and um i just knew i felt weird had trouble sleeping had a lot of anxiety and uh so I mean, he gave, I got some gooey cream and a bunch of eye drops for, it took a long time for my eyes to feel better. And they were never right after that. I uh, developed extreme farsightedness, which I had not had, I'd never worn glasses before. And um, by the time I was 30, I had macular degeneration dry and cataracts. And by the time I was 50, I had had all new lenses they had to replace because mine were just blown. So I it, so I blame it on that night, but I have no proof. But uh, it, my eyes were so profoundly affected after that night, you know, that's a logical connection. But so anyway, that next, the, the a few days later, it was the 4th of July weekend. And all the family came over because mom had the swimming pool. So to swim and have a uh, cookout and light off fireworks. Um, so the kids all ran through the house with their towels and their bathing suits out to the back. And my oldest nephew comes back in and he goes, Grandma, what's wrong with your yard? And the, all of us are like, what are you talking about? Because I don't know, for a few days, none of us had looked out the back window or noticed anything. Um, so we all went out there and there was this mark in the yard. It was about an eight-foot diameter circle. It had a swath going off one edge of it that went all the way across the length of the backyard up to the fence and the driveway where it ends. And it ended in a perfect arc, a perfect half circle. It was exactly two feet wide all the way up this street. And all the grass in this area had just like laid over and turned this weird gray-brown color. It wasn't crushed. It just kind of laid down. All the soil under the grass was hard as a rock, and it smelled kind of weird. Um, and there was one side of this circle that was kind of looked like the dirt was pushed up a little bit, and there was a big crack in it. And so one of the first things, well, we were looking at this circle, 
And my mother, out of the blue, just says, oh, that's where our UFO landed the other night. And when she said that, I, the first thing I thought about, when I, I turned around and looked at her and I thought, what is wrong with you? Why you? <laughs> they thought it was funny. They were laughing. They thought, oh, that's funny. And my mom was halfway laughing. I looked at her like somebody hit me in the face. And I, cause I remember thinking, why would you say that? And then I looked down at the mark in the yard and bam, everything starts coming back. I start remembering. I, first thing I saw was two big black eyes, just like superimposed over this mark in the yard, like coming out of my head, memories, just, and then I remember the light. I remember thinking I was dead. I mean, everything started coming back to me. It took, in the minutes, the the day, the hours, the days, the weeks that followed, memories came back. Things like when I was a young married woman in 1978, um, remembering, uh, 77, 78, remembering these two black-eyed uh, little gray guys in my bedroom coming in. I mean, th- I hadn't thought about it in years. And when I said, oh, you know, when I started to talk about that I was starting to remember things to my mom, she's like, oh, I remember you called me that morning and you were flipping out. So, because I had called her the next morning to tell her that it wasn't a dream. These guys were in my room and she's like, okay, you know, she, but she remembered um, all these things that my brain had blocked up started coming in back. So that, that June 30th, 83 incident was like the trigger to set the ball in motion. And, 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 and for, for I thought I was having a nervous breakdown. I thought I'd lo- I was losing my mind. I started uh, uh, for a year or so. I started having these things where I would hear uh, phrases or words or sentences, ideas, and I would have to write them down before they would leave me alone. If I'd see a vision, a shape, uh, a design, I'd have to draw it before it would leave me alone, and I could go on with whatever I was doing. Sometimes it'd wake me up and I'd have to write it down. Uh, but anyway, one of the first things that came back in my memory that day was the book Missing Time. I realized that there was an address in the back of that book of the guy who'd written it. She could write to him if you thought you'd had an experience. And I, at that point, I wasn't sure what I'd had, what had happened, but I knew it was extraordinarily weird. And I had this mark in the yard and my mom, you know, was there so I wasn't technically alone now my sister my older sister had had an experience in 1965 that she she talked about you know occasionally and I we had no reason to doubt her uh or that she would make something like that up so I just assumed that it happened you know she was taking my mom to the bingo game one night uh one evening and on the way home from dropping her off at the bingo game, she suddenly felt the urge to pull into this parking lot of this Catholic church on 10th Street. So she pulled into the parking lot. When she got around to the back and looked up, there was this huge UFO right over her car, all kind of lights under it. And it lifted her entire car up. It didn't take her out of the car. It lifted her all the way up with her car. And then her next memory is of waking up in her car in the parking lot. It's like multiple hours later. It's now dark, and it's also now time to pick mom and mom up from the bingo game. And she went pick mom up, and she was frantic and and excited, and was telling mom all about the UFO, picking her car up, and all this other stuff. And then and that was something that she'd talked about 
you know, when I was a little kid growing up, mm -hmm. and I just assumed it happened. It was no, it was no big deal. I mean, I I thought <laughs> people, I thought everybody had this stuff, honestly, because I didn't know any different. So um, I wrote, I started out this 14-page letter that I wrote to Bud with my sister's experience, but I didn't ask her permission, and she was quite pissy with me when she found out I did it. But <laughs> I thought to myself, you'll get over it, and she did. But uh, and then I said like at the end of the letter, oh by the way, this happened. <laughs> I told him that I just told you about, and uh, I I put multiple Polaroid pictures of the mark in the yard in there. And so uh, some time passed because my mom didn't. I gave my mom the letter and I said, would you mail this? And she's like, okay. But she told Bud later she was reticent about mailing this letter for some something. She she's like, I don't know if we want to go here or not, but. She found herself in front of a mailbox a few weeks later and, and something compelled her to put that letter in the mailbox. And then I went out with a friend one night. I was out with friends and I had come home. Mom was asleep on the couch. I'm like, why are you moving the furniture around? Because they had this old, heavy 70s stuff, you know. Yeah. Take two people to move this coffee table. Mm -hmm. And clearly the coffee table didn't move. But uh, she says she didn't move it. And then she's like, oh, by the way, that guy called that wrote that book. And I'm like, excuse me? And she's like, no, yeah, he called his phone numbers over there. You can call him back. He said you could call late, you know, something to that effect. And I, and I remember my heart started racing immediately, and I started shaking. And I quickly went through my mind, am I going to do this? Do I really want to do this? You know, but I, I called him, and from that point on, it was like a three-year-long investigation. I went to New York a couple times. He came to Indiana several times. He investigated. He he interviewed neighbors. He interviewed my coworker, my boss, my friends, uh, my parents, obviously, you know, my family. And he took. Uh, I got him some soil samples, and he took back to New York at one point. When I was in New York, he took me to see Doctor Clamar's psychiatrist. He took me to the hospital in New York, and they did an electro or EKG or no uh, EEG on my brain where they put wires on your head to see if you have epilepsy stuff like that I had a CAT scan and I did six hours of verbal and written psychological testing and I, I had eventually I had a voice stress test which is kind of like a lie detector test uh, they listen to your voice or something but arranged it and that was done in Indianapolis I don't know who the guy was who did it, but Bud arranged it. I think I remember him saying, well, she she believes what she says. He said, just because she believes it doesn't mean it actually happened, but she's telling the truth in that she believes what she's telling you. So <laughs> he said, but I don't, when he found out what it was about, he's like, I don't know about this. <laughs> but, uh, and so here we are. I mean, Bud eventually approached the family and asked if we would, uh, consider allowing him to write a book about it because he had there was so much not just one thing and we had the the mark in the yard and we had these extra these out you know outside witnesses and there were other experiences that had happened it appeared to be something that my mom may have had something happen when she was a kid so it was like generational mm -hmm. and he was finding this in his research and all kinds of stuff and at first we're like eh, i don't think so no as I mean, this was 1983. You don't, even now, I don't understand anybody who would like to be famous for this sort of thing because 
I had a life to live and kids to raise, and I just wanted to be normal. I didn't yeah. ask for any of this, but it happened. Even after years, when I would try to distance myself from everything and try to just like say, stop and leave me alone. I just want a life normal here. Let me, let me have a life. Something would always happen to throw me back into the middle of it. So I finally, after a while, realized, okay, this is just my destiny. You know, I accepted it as a part of me and, and here we are. Wow. So, That's interesting. One of the first things that you mentioned that really clicked with me was the playroom. Um, when I interviewed um, Terry Lovelace, he said the same thing about that playroom and about some what he thought was a female alien that was sort of like overlooking all the children. Mm-hmm. It's, it's always, this, there, there's always so many common denominators, like, you know? I think that's why Bud wanted to write a book. I mean, because he was getting letters from hundreds and hundreds of maybe thousands of letters from all over the world from missing time. And he was seeing a pattern. And uh, there was a lot of stuff in our uh, case that was coming in in other people's letters. I remember sitting in his studio one day and just we're surrounded by boxes of letters. And he said, look at this kid. He goes, these, you know, these people have experienced the same thing you've experienced, more or less. And uh, I said, and I, it dawned on me, why, you know, why is it my, my, my letter the one you replied to? Why, do, why is my case the one you decided to investigate and now you want to write a book? Why? Why me? And he said, well, kid, I remember him. He said, well, kid, that's the $64,000 question. And he kind of smiled the way he does. And I said, do you suppose it was destiny? And he's. I don't think he was a big believer in destiny. He goes, ah, maybe. And, uh, I, you know, it just blew my mind that, you know, it ha- everything happened the way it did. Um, I asked him many times, do you think you've been, uh, you know, abducted? Be- oh, no, 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 no. He was adamant. He, he saw one on the Cape one time with somebody, but, you know, that was it. Uh, I, <laughs> I kept saying, I don't know. You're pretty you know, into the investigation side of it. So I figure somebody somebody really wanted him to do that. And for good reason, he was good at what he did. So Interesting. He was a little more uh, of the negative. I mean, the way I always see it with Bud, you know, he came to some conclusions about it that were a little more dark than mine. Um, I never felt that it was... Um, nefarious i never felt that any any harm to me was intentional uh, and i don't i don't know but i also understood that he was seeing people like me all the time he was in the emergency room so to speak of of the entire phenomenon he was seeing people that were totally trashed and couldn't function like me i was mm-hmm. completely unable to function for a while i was so wrecked and he was such a compassionate and caring person that you know it had a have an effect on him, take a toll on him. But um, he saved my life. I would, I, I have such gratitude and, and love for him. My life would be unrecognizable had I not met him. So I may not even be here. I don't know. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the other things that you've mentioned, you know, is, is it being generational? Um, I, I've, you know, almost everybody that I've interviewed has had the experience. Their 
their parents, grandparents have all had the same experience. You know, there's a few theories behind that. One is that they're checking on some type of DNA and how it might be changing or being affected through different generations. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, um, on why that is? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know why. Um, I mean, I, I can just guess that maybe there's something different about us, whether it was, uh, you know, we were born that way or something changed it or, or for the, one of my ancestors was just in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, depending on your perspective. And <clears throat> from that point on, they followed their future offspring. I don't know. I mean, it's all theory and I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. But I know in my case, my mother, at least we know my mother had some strange thing happen to her when she was little. We don't know a whole lot about my mother's family because she was adopted at the mm -hmm. age of two from the um, from a uh, she was adopted from an orphanage in Louisville, Kentucky, when she was two years old by a master sergeant in the army and then taken to China and lived there for a few years and then came back to Rhode Island and then back to Louisville, where she met my dad when she was 16. But we don't know a whole lot about her actual blood family. So, <clears throat> wow. but it seems to be from my mother's side. Right. Um, like one of the other things that you know I've also found is a common thread through these experiences is afterwards um, people experiencing enhanced psychic abilities and interest in spirituality and things like that. Did you experience any of that? Oh yeah, I experienced all that. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, in the beginning, my my contact was more physical, and I don't mm -hmm. know whether the physical contact was uh, to facilitate something else in me to prepare me or to make me be uh, capable of something later. I don't know, or if I was born that way to begin with. But um, yeah, I and and you know, I'm from the Midwest. I never went very. I never went anywhere. We weren't super religious. Uh, I mean, my dad was a Catholic altar boy and my mom was a Pentecost. And when they married each other, they were 16 and 19. And they took off and <laughs> church was not a thing anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, I got the basics of Christianity through my friends' families. I'd go to church. I went to every kind of church known to man with all of the friends that I had growing up. Because if I spent the night with them on Saturday night, the, the, the deal was I had to go to church with them on Sunday. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but for some, for somehow, some reason, I was, I, I found these epiphanies throughout my life on my own, and, and I would, you know, evolve in that way. My little sister, uh, when she was old enough to talk, she talked about seeing colors around people's bodies, auras, is what people call them now. Yes. Well, she called them colors or sparkles. And, um, now she says she can talk to dead people. Uh, I don't know. My brother's not very open about things, but I suspect that he um, has inklings of something like that as well. He just doesn't talk about it very much. He was in the military for eight years. And my older sister, you know, obviously had a lot of strange stuff and psychic ability, so to speak. And I also did as well. I mean, i I used to bend spoons when I was a kid. I used to bend brass uh, handles on ki kitchen cabinets. and uh, 
you know, my whenever my friends would get headaches, they'd come over to my house and I'd put my hands on them and they'd get real hot and then everybody'd feel better, you know. So I don't I don't know. It it's never been tested. I can't control it. I can't turn it on. I can't turn it off. I wish I could. But uh I and I get a sense of people if I talk to you on the phone, I hear if I hear your voice or I look in your eyes or I touch your hand or anywhere, you know. I, I know you, I, I get a sense of you immediately. And I, if you come up behind me, I know it's you. But if someone I don't know comes up behind me, I don't know who they are, but I know I don't know them or I've never felt them before. And I could go to the grocery store and I could walk down the aisle. And uh, there's people out there that are bad. I, mm-hmm. or, or I don't even know what they are. But if I walk past one, and I feel that brush by me, I recoil. I can't even, it's, it's like a visceral or like, you know, I can't even control it. I instantly recoil. I can feel when somebody is just rotten, mm-hmm. you know? And when I got involved with paranormal research years later in the early 2000s, and I got fascinated with EVPs, my uh, paranormal group used to call me the antenna because it seemed like my recorder always picked up really great EVPs. And um, I really began to feel that um, the things that I was recording weren't necessarily the spirits of people who'd lived here and passed on, but I feel like some of them were actually people that never lived here uh, and lived somewhere else, but for some reason I was able to record them. I had this epiphany one time. This was like 20 some years ago. No, this was longer than that. This was maybe 30 years ago. I did an EVP session with my nephew and on the front part of the, on the first part of the tape, we, we got a recording of an old man's voice that was as clear as me or you. And it said, are the spirits listening? And then another little voice right behind him saying, can I listen too?" Hmm. And I had this epiphany that, oh my God, were the spirits somewhere else? And someone is trying to hear us. And then on the other side of the tape, there was another voice. And my nephew and mom and everybody said it sounded exactly like me. Only it was a sing-songier, more happy, drifty voice sound to it, you know, rhythm to it that said in Anakma. You could almost hear the voice smile as it said that. And I have no idea what it is. We tried to figure it out. I don't know if it's a phrase or... You know, several words or a word. I we have no idea. Uh, this was you know before the internet, or I didn't. Even, we didn't even have a cell phone then. <laughs> so looking up stuff was a lot more difficult than it is now. But yeah. But and it sounded like me, and I'm like, oh, Billy and I knew that I neither one of us had made a peep the whole time. So I don't know where that came from. But that that in that day tripped my switch and I'm like yes this is it this is where I got to go because I'm going to talk to people (laughs) or or things and that's when I that's kind of when it started to connect in my head the paranormal and this alien quote unquote maybe connected and maybe these aliens that we think we are extraterrestrials are really not coming from another planet but they're already here uh, with us on some other level, you know, dimensional thing. 
Yeah, I have a couple of regular guests on my show who would completely agree with that theory. And, um, you know, I think, what, what, do you think that these, these extraterrestrials or interdimensional beings are contacting humans to help us realize some of our true potential? Like, like your ability to heal. Like every, almost every yeah. experiencer that I have interviewed has mentioned that ability to heal afterwards. And then like, I, and I had one in particular where I was in extreme amount of pain and I was doing an interview with them. And, um, and I instantly felt better. And I've never felt that bad again since talking to him. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's maybe part of it. Uh, I know that everybody's really excited about this whole a U, UAP and the government and they're hope, hoping for disclosure from the mm -hmm. government and it's my feeling and I've always had this feeling the disc disclosure that people look for is not going to come from the government not no. from any government <laughs> on the planet Everybody it's going to come from too. <laughs> it's going to come from people like me mm -hmm. uh, who are speaking out and I think who they're running the show not governments whatever it is that is wanting us to recognize that them is choosing how and when and nobody else can change it or stop it so and i just feel like it's at hand it's close at hand right now and that when people realize the truth it's going to blow some people's minds they're not going to be able to wrap their heads around it yeah uh, it's you know i'll be honest before i started this podcast i was skeptical about experiences and abductions um, however, now after interviewing, I don't know, maybe 50 mm. people, I, I completely believe it. And especially after having that experience that I had, actually it was, it was Reverend Michael Carter that I was talking to that day. And, and just afterwards, oh, I, he's I, such I, a lovely guy. I, I never felt the same again. Like I was in so much pain and, and he's I, such a beautiful person. He's amazing. He's amazing. He and I truly believe that he has an ability to heal people that was given to him by some kind of interdimensional being. Well, you know what? I think we all have the ability. I think the thing, the secret is that we need to realize what we're capable of. I think human beings are incredibly powerful, magnificent, energetic creatures. And we, you know, we're riding around here in meat suits having this experience mm -hmm. here. And we just need to remember what we're capable of and how powerful our thoughts are. Because our thoughts can change our reality. If you look around you, everything that you see in your room began as a thought from somebody. Somebody designed mm -hmm. this or that, you know. Like, I, I did a lot of art and drawings and uh, designs and stuff in the first year or two after 83. And uh, quite a few of them started to, crop circles started to show up. Uh, some similar, some extremely similar, almost like that's not even possible similar and I know that the consensus now is that most crop circles are maybe all crop circles are done by humans and I don't care who does them. Someone had to put the design in that human's brain, just like the design was in mine. They mm -hmm. just decided to put theirs in somebody's rye field and I put it on paper. You know what I mean? But it, it, and I think they're important. I think they, they're meant to trigger things in people when they see them. I know it did. Some of them did for me. Some type so, of activation code. Some some kind of a trigger. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. 
you know, one of the things, I mean, these are my theories. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm right. I don't know. Yeah. Nobody knows. I don't think anybody knows. I can tell you what I remember. Right. I can tell you what the, the, the the hard fact stuff, like the mark in the yard, Mm -hmm. I still have chunks of dirt from, 39 years ago that I did, saved. What, what did the test come back at? at, at uh, sent out? It's in his book, Intruders, and I mm-hmm. can't remember. They had to bake it for some ridiculous length of time, and it still never accepted water. And, That's another uh, common thing, too. And it, uh, I don't think it had any, like, microbiological life in it or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. there was no, no life in the soil at all. But, uh, you know, even now, the the pieces that I have, they look kind of weird. They look more like rocks than pieces of soil that I dug up with a spade. And it was hard then. But, you know, I took a chunk of it back in the day and I put it in a glass of water all night long. And I put a chunk of regular clump of dirt I got out of the yard from a different area and put it in a glass of water. And the next day, you know, when I got up, I had a glass of mud at the bottom of one and then i had a rock sitting in i mean it never sitting in water for 24 hours never phased it and it's i don't know i i guess maybe i'll try to experiment again i had a tornado here back in 2013 that completely wiped out my house and i lost a whole bunch of stuff but i lost and i lost you know some uh computer hard drives and stuff but we were able to pull some uh, we were able to pull a lot off of the drives before we trashed the computer, but some stuff we lost. But fortunately, like the stuff that I had, like the the chunks of soil, I had put them in plastic bags and they were buried at the bottom of a cedar chest that my mom had given me before she passed away. The cedar chest was tore up, but it wasn't, it was still in the house. It didn't get sucked away like most everything else mm-hmm. uh so those pieces that that stuff survived and i actually still have it i'm so thankful it's 39 years old but you know I, i'd be more than happy to give if some scientist somewhere wants to look at it now i'd be more than happy to give them a piece but i got a bunch mm. but i got it hidden away here in the house so it doesn't <laughs> disappear <laughs> wow That's- uh, and I've heard that before, where, where where these crafts have landed, and then there there there's no type of like um, microbial life in the soil, and it won't accept water. Like another and snow one melted off of it things. the first year. You know, it happened in July. Well, it happened the end of June, and then the fall come, and we get a light snow to a couple two three inches. About a half an hour after snow starts falling. And the ground has a dusting mm-hmm. of snow over it. You begin to see this pattern as the the water literally melts off of the whole area where this is. And I don't know why it would do that. Um, I know the grass was laying down, and everywhere else the grass was standing up. And I don't know if uh, you know that has something to do with it. But I do know that you know even after we get another after we get a couple inches of snow on the ground, where you even an uneven amount of you know. Uh, an area in the grass would be finally covered, it would still be no snow on the mark and it would just stand out like a sore thumb. And that happened all winter the first year. It didn't happen the second year, but it did the first. Incredible. And it took several years, several years for that area to, I say, heal. Mm-hmm. And the grass that grew in, it it grew from the outside back in like a wound, 
healing, but the grass looked different. It was thicker and it was a darker green color, almost had a purplish dark green look to it. It was much thicker and hardier. Uh, and it eventually healed in and grew in. And then years later, you know, when my parents, my mother passed away in 2001 and then daddy went like seven years later. And before he passed away, though, he had to go in a nursing home and we had to sell the house. At that point, you couldn't see where the mark was unless you had, if you didn't know it was there, you would not notice it. But anybody who'd seen it before could very slightly see a different, you know, texture in the grass, but you know, but you know, it was virtually unnoticeable if you never had never seen it that other way. Hmm. So, and then the people that bought the house, it turns out the girl and her husband who bought the house were actually friends with someone I went to school with. And they reached out to me years later and said, Hey, you know, my friend bought your mom and dad's house and we're just finding out about all the weird stuff that happened here. I'm like, okay. Has anybody, anything strange happened there since they moved in? And she's right. like, absolutely not. Nothing. Quiet. Everything's great. No problems. No weird alien stuff. No ghosts. None of that. I'm like, well, that's good. So apparently it wasn't the house that was haunted. It was us. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I've done paranormal investigation also. And, and I think that that type of activity for some reason... Like, like you mentioned, like you being like like an EVP, you know, like you just attract those EVPs. Um, it's interesting that that it does seem to be like certain people are able to bring out, you know, get forth more evidence and more EVPs or more pictures or whatever it is that they're doing than others. It's like they're like a receiver or or something for the paranormal, or they're able to connect with another dimension where that evidence is coming from i uh i had a um i've had several c uh i've had several ctas and mras of my brain and neck because i have a genetic disorder in my vascular system called fmd mm -hmm. so they scream i can get this in any 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 part of my vascular system so i'm screened every I'm screened every year for uh, renals and stuff, but every five years is head and neck. And I have uh, had two different, I've actually had three different neurologists tell me I have a bright spot in the center of my brain. And then the last time I had one, I also had one in, in the visual cortex of my brain. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out. Oh my God, I got this weird stuff in my head. And, um, all of them said, no, 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 it's nothing to be concerned about. It's not fatal. It's not going to kill you. It's not a tumor or anything. I said, what is it? And she said, we think it may be scar tissue. And I said, why would I have scar tissue in my brain? And she said, well, sometimes it's age related. Although I was, I was told this when I was in my thirties also, um, or it could be scar tissue from migraines. And I'm like, at that point, I don't have migraines. I very rarely, any headache I have is a sinus headache, you know. Uh, but in the last few years, I have started to have, um, I probably had a handful of what they call uh, ocular migraines, where I see uh, color triangles in my left eye that spin and look like a kaleidoscope, kind of a wedge of a kaleidoscope. Mm -hmm. It'll start as the flashing, and then it's, then I see the triangles, 
And then uh, I'm blind in that eye for about 20 minutes afterwards, but I don't get a headache or anything like that. Um, of course, I've been worked over with a fine tooth comb because of that. Cause I thought, oh my God, I've had a stroke or I've got a brain tumor. Thought it was in my eyeball. It was. It's not coming from my eye. It's coming from the visual cortex part of my brain. Uh, but uh, it's actually beautiful. And I went online and did some research about it. My ocular neurologist showed me websites of people that like actually do art work of their aural migraine visions, their their hallucinations or whatever, and they're gorgeous. And some of them are exactly what I see in the one eye. But that just started a few years ago, and I maybe have had five, four or five in the last five years. So, but it doesn't explain why they told me that I had scar tissue prior to it. And I know, and I, and when I was a child, I know it sounds crazy, but I was the same height I am now in kindergarten. And I had started my menstrual cycle when I was seven years old. And I, doctors worked me over. They thought I had a tumor in my pituitary gland, um, but they didn't find anything. They found no reason for me to be that way. I had hyperadrenalism, but there was no organic reason for it. Like I didn't have any tumors on my adrenal glands or any cysts or anything. So they couldn't figure out why I had so much adrenaline in me. And, uh, at one point it was mentioned that I might even end up having that giantess stuff, you know, be super big and tall. But when I reached a point that I would normally start growing, I stopped. And now I'm five foot three. I'm not even considered tall. I mean, I've never grew past. I never got more than an inch taller, maybe or so. I think my height was five foot four at my tallest. And I've, you know, I've had spine surgery and I'm 62 years old now. So I've kind of shrunk a little bit. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I never grew much more after. Uh, you can see pictures of me in, in uh, first grade school class pictures. And I'm taller than the teacher. <laughs> there's a there's a picture of me. I gave it to Peter Robbins one time. And it's funny. It's my little brother who's 14 months younger than me. And me sitting on the cedar chest that my mom gave me later. Uh, and I looked like a giant next to him. And he was an average size kid. And, it, you know, it, I was pitiful. <laughs> I don't know why I was like that. Do you think this is a result of some type of genetic modification that they're doing? I, you know, I don't know. Could be. Maybe. I, I mean, it's a theory. I don't know for sure. So, I'm definitely had strange things go on with me. Like I said, the FMD I have is rare. And the only way they, the reason they found it was because my blood pressure went out of control, was really high and medicine wasn't touching it. So they did a, a CAT scan of my kidneys. They were actually looking at my adrenal glands. But when they put the dye in me, my renal artery lit up and I had seven aneurysms on my renal artery that I didn't even know I had. Any one of those could have busted and killed me at any time. But, uh, so I'm grateful that it was found. I feel like a cat with nine lives and I've spent maybe three of them now, <laughs> but, uh, all they did was do a balloon angioplasty on my renal artery and inside my renal artery were the doctor called it spider webs and that they had grown in the middle of the artery and attached themselves to the wall and were pulling the artery closed. Like my body was trying to kill me. 
So they just inflated balloons in there, popped the strings, artery popped back open, didn't need stents or anything, come out of the procedure, and my blood pressure was like 106 over 60. And I didn't have to have medicine. And I had taken blood pressure medicine since I was 13. So they think I might have been born with it. So, wow. And then it's weird. I had webbing inside of my uh, intestines. Uh, I mean, you know, your abdominal area. Mm -hmm. There was like all of my intestines were wrapped in a ball of web. And I almost lost about four feet of them. And it was scar tissue that had turned into a web. And they had to two surgery, two emergency surgeries to cut out over 35 partial bowel blockages from this webbing that grew inside my abdominal cavity. And I just thought it was weird that I had all this uh, adhesion, the scar tissue adhesion webbing inside. He said I look like one giant organ from the above the navel down. So the strange. surgeon was flipped out. But, you know, it kind of had the same thing in my arteries. So, I don't my body's a little strange. But I'm, I've made it to 62 so far. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I need to do the healing thing on myself. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, so far, everything weird's been caught and repaired, so I've been very fortunate, and I'm grateful. Any signs of implants? Um, I don't, I don't know. No, not that I'm, I, I know I had that scoop mark on my leg, and I had that thing in my leg when I had, um, but they did some kind of surgery on me, and they removed, I had this little ball on the other shin that roll I could roll it up and down my shin and I had some other kind of surgery I can't I don't know if it was my gallbladder surgery and during that they removed it and I I think they were concerned they were more concerned about that than they were the other surgery they were doing because I think my doctor thought it might be like bone cancer but uh when he I remember he said when he put the scalpel to it it popped right out and he joked at me he said it popped up and hit the light <laughs> and he started laughing which I don't think it did I think he was messing with me but mm -hmm. it popped right out and I wanted it I asked him if I could have it but he said it it had already been disposed of so I don't know what that thing was it didn't hurt it just came it popped up out of nowhere and you could literally roll it up and down my shin bone hmm. it's gone now did, now did you have more health problems prior to that popping out or um, afterwards, that was after. It was how health problems came after because that, I was young when that. I was pretty young when that happened. That's another thing that I've also heard common is like people that have had implants. Once the implant was removed, you would have more health problems. And so, one of the theories is that these implants are actually there to to help. Hmm. I don't know. They they. I'm doing pretty good right now, so but, you know it wouldn't hurt my feelings unless they came back and did a few tweaks. <laughs> I'm not. I'd like to see my granddaughter get married and have kids. So yeah, but it, you know what, what, whatever will be will be. I'm not afraid of being. I'm not afraid of death. So it's so good. Mm -hmm. Um, other than you and your sisters, are you ever concerned about like your grandchildren having to have to go through these experiences? Uh, well, yeah, of course. That's, I have normal mom slash grandma, you know, mama bear protective instincts. You never want your kids to, to hurt or be afraid, you know, but, um, 
my my sons did have some strange things happen when they were little. They don't like to talk about it. And then my granddaughter had a small period of time when she was maybe five, four or five, where she had night terrors about aliens coming through her bedroom window, which we had, don't know where she got that from because <clears throat> we had a rule. We didn't talk about any of this stuff in front of the little kids, mine or my grandkids. Mm -hmm. That was a rule at mom and dad's house as well. Now, I don't know if they, what they might have overheard every now and then, you know, and of course now there's stuff all over TV. So, but back then there wasn't, mm -hmm. but I always keep telling myself, I'm still here. I'm alive. You know, I'm feeling good. Life's good. I, I feel like if anything wanted to harm me intentionally, I'd have been gone a long time ago. I feel like if anything wanted to harm humans you on this planet, we would already be gone. So I'm not afraid of that. Right. And, you know, I don't see any useful purpose in living your life in fear. No, I don't either. It no. doesn't it doesn't do anybody any good and it doesn't change anything. Right. Yeah. And, and I think their intention is not to harm us. I think sometimes when they do whatever they're doing, and I don't know why they do it, or the way they, why they do it the way they do it, um... Yeah, but we're humans, and we we can't even think about how we can't even think in the way they do. So I have no idea. That'd be like trying to figure out why ants doing what it's doing, mm -hmm. or try to tell it something we're doing, and it's like they don't even know we exist most of the time, you know, until somebody steps on them. But uh, so yeah, I don't. I, and I think there's a lot of different um, there's a lot of different life forms. Yes, and in different forms all around us and out there everywhere with multiple different agendas. There may be some nefarious bad guys out there somewhere that just are disgusted with humans like we're little nasty things that need to be eradicated. I don't know. And there may be uh, people that are, uh, you know, loving and, and oh, like, like I am with my puppy dogs and I want to mm -hmm. hug them and hold them all the time, you know. And then there may be a bunch of scientists and engineers that are like, oh, that's interesting, you know, and don't care one way or another. You know, it, it, I, I think there's just a lot of different agendas, a lot of different things going on with a lot of different life forces and that we only see a tiny sliver of what's going on around us because that's the only thing we're wired for. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that some of them are working together? Yes. And I think some of them are working with somebody, some of the people here. And I don't mean government, like I mean scientists people. Okay. Scientists doesn't worry me. If they're working, one of the accounts that I've heard is that when he was, he was taken, there was a variety of extraterrestrials that he had experienced, like the Nordics, the Greys, a praying mantis. But what disturbed me about his story was that there was a general, some type of human military general there. That part kind of bothers me. <laughs> I have one memory of somebody, and I was in some medical facility, and I was with humans. And I don't know who this guy was. He was a doctor. I called him the doctor. Mm -hmm. Had a white lab coat on. He was an older man, had white hair. His face was kind of red and ruddy. And he had a very thick southern drawl, kind of a deep voice. 
And he said to me, you got a little bug in your ear, lady, little girl, we'll take this out and you'll feel a lot better. And um, again, it was in the ear that I got stabbed in in 83. And uh, he pulled this thing out of my, he shoved this stuff in my ear, it hurt, and he pulled this thing out and it looked like a BB. And then it, I can't remember whether it had legs when he pulled it out and then the legs went away in it or, and it turned into a BB or it had, it kind of first looked like a mosquito, then it turned into a ball. And he kind of laughed at it and he, and he looked at me and he said, I don't even know why I'm bothering to tell you anything because you're not going to remember any of this. And I remember looking at him and saying, Oh, I'm never going to forget you. And then bam, that's, I went, I was out and he was human. Hmm. This was a long time ago. Hmm. Humans scare me more than the extraterrestrials now. Uh, humans are frightening. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think you share that sentiment. <laughs> I mean, there there's so much beauty in this world. There really is. There's and there's so much beauty in human beings. Yeah. There is something tragically broken in some people mm -hmm. and I don't know why. And it's scary. I can't even fathom the way some people behave and treat each other. I can't even, I'm not made of the same stuff cause I can't even, it, it won't even process in my head. It just makes absolutely no sense. Hmm. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. You mentioned like, you know, early on in the interview that, that there's certain people, you know, just give you the heebie-jeebies. You just, you're just like, ooh. I get that. I just don't, I don't even have to talk to him. I just have to be mm -hmm. within the Me too. You know, just walk by him and it kind of broke. It, I quit smoking 20-some years ago. I used to smoke. Mm -hmm. And I quit when my mom got lung cancer. We all quit. And I can walk past somebody in a grocery store and I can smell that they had a cigarette in the car. You know, I can smell it as they walk by. It's the same deal. As they walk by, I, I can feel it. I can feel them as they walk by. And some people feel, bro. <laughs> I literally shudder. Yeah. And I don't even realize it until I'm like, ooh, what was that? Do you think those people are clones? I don't know what they are. Sometimes I wonder. Because I get that Who same would want to clone that? <laughs> well, that's why I wonder, like, like, like maybe it's because they, they not, they're not complete, you know? Or some, maybe they're not uh, human. I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> or you they're know? just rotten people. Something's wrong with them. You know, I sometimes I I hear lately. Sometimes I've been known to say the gene pool needs a little chlorine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we uh, if the you know like ancient aliens, they say they they came and tweaked us. Well, we need another tweak. <laughs> it's about time for a new tweak. I wonder so, if that's what they're doing. I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe there's, you know, humans tweaking us in the wrong way, and then the aliens are trying to untweak what we're tweaking, and there's just a whole lot of tweaking. There's a lot, a lot of tweaking going on. That doesn't sound right. But, <laughs> but um, you know, I, and I agree, like, like, humans have so much potential, and there's so much beauty in the world to experience. It's like, why can't this we just get planet, all on the same page? It doesn't make know, sense. I, know this, I wish we took better care of the planet and the other life on here because we owe it to them. And because there is so much beauty 
in this planet, in this world, in the life that we see. And it's would be heartbreaking if it didn't, if it ceased to exist and other people couldn't have this experience. Mm -hmm. It would be heartbreaking. This is an experience. I believe, I believe there's tons of life out there in all the world. Me too. You know, out there. But I believe that this, this much diversity in this tiny little spot on this little blue ball is so, I think it's kind of rare. I, I feel like it's kind of a rare and wonderful thing and we're messing it up and it hurts my heart that, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Me too. Me too. You know, and, um, you know, like I say, I've, I interview a lot of people and, you know, two of the people that I do regularly is, is, is Reverend Carter, who feels the same way you, you do. And also Preston Dennett. He, he comes on quite a bit. He also feels that way also. You know, that, that if there's anything to learn from all this, that, that, that there's life, that we, everywhere, you know, everything seems to be alive. Um, and we have to do a better job at recognizing that and taking care of things because it's precious and it's us yeah it's us we need to do something better um so before we wrap up the the interview i mean i can talk to you all day about paranormal and aliens and interdimensional and quantum type of stuff yeah um like what is the thing that you have gained the most from your experience um a sense of myself my sense of self and my place in the universe and um insight into uh life and people you know i know that sounds crazy that sounds like something that you know it doesn't sound like anything alien or anything but Right. On that th these experiences have led me this in this direction that was my choice i learned that i have a choice mm -hmm. uh that everything is a choice and i can't sometimes i can't control the experiences i have or maybe i can and i don't realize it yet i don't know but i always control how i respond to them and i've chosen to not feel angry and bitter and paranoid i've chosen to be happy and to find the lesson in everything, you know, it's a choice. Everything is a choice. I'm exercising my free will for the for positiveness. And, and you know, that's what I've learned. And, and that that's what it's all about, you know. I, in my opinion, also, you know, we we can focus on. Because, because, and I'm sure you go through have experiences too. With there's there's people out there with another a darker agenda in this field, you know, that are trying to push, you know, fear, fear based, you know, things like like the aliens are 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 demonic or things like that. And I don't buy into the fear based stuff. I I, I don't either. I mean, I I understand about being careful and watchful in airspace. Planes crash with planes crash into each other all the time. Yeah, they don't need other stuff out there crashing. You know what I mean? Or they don't do it all the time. But I mean, there are plane crashes. Planes fall out of the sky. Planes hit other planes. It, it happens. You know. But it, I don't think that a plane has hit a UFO. Ever. Enough, you know. <laughs> you know. And yeah, they've come. They've flown around and shut off 
nuclear reactors. Well, mm-hmm. I don't really have a problem with that. Me either. <laughs> uh, so I'm not. I'm not afraid of that. I'm not. A, I had a near-death experience when I gave birth to my youngest, my oldest son, and I'm actually I'm not afraid of death because I know that death is not an ending. Me it's too. just a change. So, uh, but it's I, I'm not. I'm choosing not. I don't want to live my life in fear. Uh, I feel like if they were going to wipe us out. We'd have been gone a long time ago because, frankly, humans can be assholes and we're pretty dangerous with each other and vicious. You know what I mean? So uh, if they were going to eradicate us, we'd already be gone because I'm quite sure that they have the ability to do it. So I'm not afraid of that. I've had contact with weird things and I'm still alive. Maybe some of the contact inadvertently did some damage to my human body. I don't know, but somehow I've always managed to be put into the hands of the right people who saved me, you know, the doctors like found the FMD and, and everything else that most people who have FMD, it's not diagnosed until the autopsy. So I'm, I'm blessed. I've been blessed multiple times. Um, so I, I don't, I don't buy into the fear mongering. I think the fear thing is all about getting more money. I do too. It's just so, a big seller. Hmm. Like I said, disclosure is not coming from any government on this planet. It's going to come from them, and they're going to use us to do it. Yeah, yeah. and I think they're doing it. I think they're doing it in a, in a very slow, methodical And that's way. how it has to be because people can't just – you can't just throw this at people all at once. It has to be absorbed slowly, and it takes time. And, and I also think when they're doing it, you know, they're, they're trying to do it in a way that's uh, positive. You know, I, I think that negative stuff out there is just garbage. They don't want to scare us. I mean, just like when my mom, I, when my mom died and she, she gave me those signs that I had asked for that we talked about. You know, I was ecstatic and thrilled. We had agreed upon this before she died and she knew that I wouldn't be afraid. But when my, my little sister was kind of. Like it seemed like she was not, you know, like kind of angry. Like mom didn't give her any signs. She didn't dream or have anything. And I said, "Did you ask her?" She said, "No." And I said, "Well, if she had done this at your house, would you have not sh- your pants?" And she said, "Yeah, I would have had a heart attack." And I go, "Well, your mom doesn't want you to have a heart attack. Your mom doesn't want to scare you. So you know, she did this, me and Dave, and I'm telling you about it. So you got it through me." But you, you know, I'm see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think they want to. At least the ones I'm having contact with don't want to scare us. They want us to. Fear closes your mind. I had a, a something came in my head once that said fear slows the process. That was a that was a a, a word a sentence that I had was bugging me that I had to write it down before I forgot it. During that time when I was getting these this information, you know, fear slows the process. Awesome, and and I think that's a great way to. This would be a good place to kind of you know give people something to think about, and, and mm-hmm. you know, good place to end. But before we do wrap it up, um, you know, where's the best place uh, for my listeners to find you? I have a website mm-hmm. I've had for twenty some years. My husband is my webmaster. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's Deb's Home dot com. Uh, 
you know, we've, we've stepped up. I'm, I'm just recently retired. I retired in September after working. Congratulations. For Thank you. So, I mean, I'm planning on putting a lot more content and, you know, maybe video blogs and things like that on there now that I'm, I'm going to have more time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can reach me, you can email me at that website. It's www.debshome.com, debshome.com. And I will re- I, I answer every email uh, personally. And if you want to share your experiences with me or you just want to bounce something off me or whatever, I'm there. Uh, and uh, I don't always have a lot of answers. Uh, you know, I still, the older I get, it seems like the more questions I have. But, of course. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm here if anybody wants to write to me. And um, I am on Facebook, although I'm not on there a lot. Uh, and it's Deb White Cobble. White is my maiden name, so and I use that so all my old school chums could find me. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first signed up to to uh, Facebook. So, um, and then you know you can get the you can get the book Extraordinary Contact at Amazon, Books a Million, Barnes and Nobles. And it's on Kindle. Any online bookseller, I think you can probably get it. And it's published by uh, August Night Press, and you can there's a link on my website. And there's a link on their website, too, as well. Um, Are you still doing a radio show, too? No, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm kind of sad about it because I used to love doing it. Uh, my buddy Greg Cable and I had mm-hmm. a, a podcast called Midwest Pair Talk Radio. Sometimes we had guests. Sometimes we just chatted about whatever was current, you know, uh, in the paranormal slash UFO world. Mostly it was paranormal at that point. But Greg moved away. And, you know, I started second shift, which screwed up all our recording time. <laughs> so I haven't done it for several years. I would love to do it again, maybe someday. I was actually thinking about maybe starting up a YouTube channel. I have one, but it's mostly my granddaughter. <laughs> she was a little kind of private, you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I miss that. I have the perfect face for a radio is what I always told Greg. And, you know, we, we had good chemistry. We had a lot of fun. Awesome. So. Well, I hope you guys get back together. Like, I do everything through Zoom, so. Yeah, they, they, we didn't have Zoom back then. You know, Greg had a, like, Sam Broadcasting thing, and we used that, and, you know, it was a lot more complicated. It's a lot easier now than it was back in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Much. So. Great. And Greg was the brains. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on today. It was a great interview. Hope to come back. Hope you come back. We'll love to dive more into the paranormal type of stuff and spiritual stuff as well. Yeah, um, I got some EDPs I could send you. You can play sometime. We can do that. Maybe. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah. And, um, Hang on for one moment, and I'm just going to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee,
coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, 